Hey lovelies, before we get started, I wanted to let you know about a little program I run called Lovely Perks. Every month, I send out an email with an exclusive discount code valid on one item for one week. It's a little perk that I don't publish anywhere else as a special thank you to the lovelies who subscribe to my email list. If you'd like to subscribe, the link to do so is in the show notes. You can also sign up by going to impactfashionnyc.com and scrolling to the bottom of any page or putting your email into the pop-up. And the real bonus is that my emails have tons of educational content around what what looks best on our bodies, first tips on limited quantities, and tons of style inspo. Thanks for being here, and enjoy the show. From Impact Fashion, it's Be Impactful, a show about the women making a difference in their own corners of the world. And on today's show, I talk with an author and accident survivor about the traumatic brain injury that changed her life. She shares what it was like to be told she couldn't go home, the spiral of telling yourself stories in your own head, and why being so grateful to be alive didn't necessarily work in her favor. When putting together these episodes, it's no surprise that one of the things I've become very familiar with is the way my guests speak. Kate Harvey has an extremely measured tone. She's someone who likes to think things through and has had the time to do so. The truth is, we don't like to think about how our lives would change in the face of injury, but hers did. Here's how. What I was like as a little kid, uh, I think uh, recognizing that, uh, I'll, I'll disclaim my own description, since, you know, the way we talk about ourselves is not the way people talk about us. My best recollection is that the word rambunctious was first used in our house, I think, when I was little versus my younger brother. And one of the things that I appreciated as a little, you know, noisy, probably person, was the opportunity to ask questions and get into stuff. So I think from the young age, I liked colors. And if I look at old family photos, I'm always wearing, you know, like stripes and dots. And I'm sure that was probably late 70s, early 80s fashion. At the same time, that's what I was drawn to. I was always trying to be in stuff. And that probably was the first mark of my intention to have three jobs in my life, a fact checker, a private investigator, and the runner of a business that does bespoke personal shopping. Wow. Okay. I have lots of questions about the private investigator thing. I know that you went to law school. So was that, did you private investigate before or after law school? How did you become, how does one become a private investigator? So I would need to ask a colleague who actually is a PI. I believe that there, I don't think there's coursework. I think there's a test you take and I don't think it's, it's, it's different enough. I think from the police Academy at the same time, I have no, I have yet to pursue it. And I figure I'm still on the latter side of 50. So that's certainly a possibility. The law school thing is something that, and if my, when my father listens to this and he hears it, he he's probably heard this truth and you'll hear it again. Now, when faced with the lower options offered when I was a senior in college and whether, you know, what I would do for work and the jobs offered and having been counseled and coached and raised to lead what I call a linear life. You're born, you go to school, 
you go to school, you maybe work, work in service, you meet someone, you marry, you have children, and that's a fairly straight path. Yeah. Well, my path was never super straight, and it definitely got way crooked when I chose to go to law school because I thought, well, college makes sense to go to grad school afterwards. When I failed the bar exam, that certainly threw, uh, that was the wrinkle in the linen that I could never quite iron straight and flat. So I asked myself the hard question, what on earth were you doing for three years besides learning a great deal about justice in this country and the history of justice or injustice in this country from way far back? So your point, your question's a good one. Had I had the foresight to think, well, now that I know more about analysis and the courts and the local governments, this is my path to being a PI. And I know, you know what, you're so smart. I've never thought about it like this. That's really cool. What I find interesting and challenging is media describes those who represent people in government and the people of note as their lawyers. And the truth is this, every person that graduated from law school is a lawyer. Only people who pass the bar in a state or another and are licensed are attorneys. So we don't there's a have difference common, between those two words? There is. I did not know that. Well, I only came to learn it <laughs> as I got a little older and people would say to me, yo, I'm starting a business. Can you write my contract for me? And I can't. I can right. refer them to someone. And I also, and people say, people have, people continue to ask me, hey, look, I just got this you know, LLC paperwork, can you review it? I said, I can read it like it's Vanity Fair and I can't give you my opinion on it because it's not valid. Mm -hmm. And then they asked, well, didn't you go to law school? And didn't you graduate? And right. I said, yes, yes, and no. Right. So it's an interesting, I, I'll tell you this, it humbled me hard and it does to this day because I don't, I'm not in the same category as Bill Barr and Rudy Giuliani. I mean, is anybody really? That's Cool. No. <laughs> but we'll we'll circle back probably to I think where where your thought went about uh so did you ever actually become a PI? Did that was that something that you ever no. actually were? Oh no. Oh no. okay. and and because my time on this earth is not finished, I feel like, you know, what's gonna come up could be Maybe. that. Because Maybe. who would notice me? Like I could undercover this stuff with ease. I hear that. I definitely hear that. Okay. Well, gonna I mean, we're going to circle back to law school. So you, so we're obviously fast forwarding through your life and, um, you, you go to law school, you fail the bar. What happened? What year is that? By the way, that is October of 1999. Okay. So, you know, late nineties, early two thousands. What do you do? What do you do next? You know, what, sure. where does your life take you after you fail the bar? My life took me to a place where I chose to ask the question, what did you learn in these years? And I realized I learned applicable skills for other industries and businesses, analysis, research, writing. A friend was very happy at an ad agency and in conversation one day with her and hearing about how much she loved her job, she shared that she had heard that they were hiring consultants and I said, would you please consider mentioning me? Because if all they're looking for is someone to do some strategic review and research on competitors and this, that, and the other, I can do that. Fast forward to she did, I interviewed, they hired me. I did that for a few months and I was hired, you know, for real full-time. And while it's a, certainly a somewhat crooked path, 
law school to um, ad agencies. It is one that in a lot of ways makes sense because advocacy, whether it's for clients or it's for clients, isn't that different in the right. structure. It's certainly different in, and, and it's really different in the money on it and in the public on it and in the culture on it. So to this day, that's probably the most inclusive, enjoyable place I've ever been because everyone there, this is before uh, agencies looked for people to be good at coding mm. and programming and SEM and writing. The world of being good at one thing and really, really good at it is finito. Yeah. Which is I an interesting thing place. to observe. It, it's, I, I, it doesn't upset me as much as it, I challenge it. I mean, why? Yeah. I mean, it's something that I actually get stuck in a lot because I mean, as a small business you owner, you, yeah, I get stuck in a lot because see, I want to be really good at everything. I always want to be really good at everything. And it's, and it's also, especially as I was building my brand, as I was building impact fashion, it was the kind of thing where I knew, like there were certain things that I just couldn't afford to hire out. So like, I have to figure out how to build a website because building, because hiring someone to make your website can cost like $10,000 and I just didn't have that money. So I just had to figure it out. And now I'm actually a pretty proficient web coder because it just like, now I don't need to hire it out because I just figured it out. And at the same time, there is a part of me that's feeling that like at this point in my career and in my company, I probably shouldn't be spending time on those things. Like I probably should be hiring them out and freeing myself up to do other things, but I don't know. Like you also, you do, we, we do get stuck in this, you know, Jack of all trades kind of master of none situation that I certainly find myself stuck in sometimes. So, so you, you're at this ad agency and you're doing, you know, this advocacy for clients, you're, you're managing clients and, and working with their, um, you know, analyzing their competitors and that kind of thing. And uh, what ends up happening with that job? How does that, you know, how does that fall, you know, go through? How does, how does so, that play out? No, sure. And if you give me permission later, I want to circle back to your point about master of none, because Aziz Ansari would laugh at you for saying that, because that's not who you are, number one. So <laughs> client facing and content making and being something of a link between programming and design and the partners, it was a really good experience for me to learn how to listen to people in the different ways you need to listen to them. And also to learn there's a difference between listening and hearing. Mm -hmm. I think that would have come up when I was singing in church choir or something, but no. <laughs> so I felt good about where that could go as a strategist, as a marketer, as a, I don't want to, now that everyone, everyone's now called a creative. I don't really mm -hmm. ever understand why that's a, like a noun for a person, but whatever. And during this time, I met a guy who I began to see long distance. He was in med school at the time. And when he matched his residency, that was in St. Louis. And the silly young 20s girl that I was, I thought, you know, we really need to see if this relationship is what it could be and we're in love and this, that. So I moved to St. Louis. Now, here's a PSA for all listeners who are not already aware of this. You don't leave a job until you have a job somewhere else. Mm -hmm. And you try not to leave a job uh, for another job unless it is a better fit for you or you'd be happier there or maybe it pays you more money, whatever is important to you. Now, in 2002, that's not really a thing because our economy hadn't completely gone to hell. And we had yet to see 
the power of all that is digital. The internet had yet to become, you know, the kingmaker and king destroyer. So I moved to St. Louis. And uh, on the promise of one of the partners at the agency, I would have an easy walk to a sister agency when I contacted them. Not only had they never heard of me, they had never heard of the partner. So Great. to your so you know what? As you have as you learned when you became a master in web code and program for sites, need moves us to make important decisions. Yeah. And when our need is met with tenacity and a desire to really be who we can be, you figure it out. And so with joy, I began doing marketing and sales and small business. I'm still good friends with the runner of that company. And uh, from there, I, when I picked up some um, part-time work at Sephora while I was being a receptionist at the A.G. Edwards office in um, Clayton, Missouri, which is like a fancier suburb of St. Louis. And when I came back to New York, because I could only be gone for two years, uh, I went to work at Sephora. And so the circuitousness, is that a word? I think, yes, security doesn't sound like a word. Yeah, but it sounds is. like a tech word, but yeah, not really. Right. It's one of those words that reads like more of a word than it sounds like a word. Like when you sure. read it, you're like, circle, like, I get if it. You, yeah. If you, if there were enough letters in Scrabble and you can make that word, you would yeah. run the board for the exactly. rest of your life. probably. <laughs> so the circuitousness of my life continued when I went to Sephora, started in stores and got myself to work in education. And my mother being a Montessori teacher and me having thought about going to grad school to get my teaching degree, while in certainly teaching grownups is not the same as teaching young people in school, it was a really good move for me to start to understand better the whole listening thing. And uh, I think the term is active listening. Yeah. So, and in New York City, uh, when you can learn how to better access your senses, that will serve you because it, it never stops anywhere. And right. it really never stops in the five burbs. That is that is one hundred percent true. I wanna I wanna fast forward a little bit. Was that the job that you had um, that that you had in two thousand nine that you were laid off from? No, I made the move from Sephora to the cosmetics business to or to one of the brands rather, and that's the job that I had been laid off from a week before. The other thing that kind of made my life super circuitous. Yeah, the other the other major thing. So, you know, in 2009, a lot of people lost their jobs. Um, a lot of people got um, got laid off. And you, had, you were part of that. You experienced that. Um, and then uh, two weeks later, the, one week later, one week later, I see you're saying, excuse, excuse the, the fact check on that. Um, I'm just going to turn the floor over to you. So what happens? I woke up one week from having been laid off and went out to Brooklyn to see a friend. And when I got to my friend's home, I forget why the, the day was, or she wasn't at work that day. We got into talking about, as women can do, hair. She liked how my hair looked. I said, well, you know, my hairstylist charges less when you go to her house. So what I call her, I did. She was home. We made the appointment. And we decided to walk from my friend and her husband's home to the stylist in her husband's home in Brooklyn. And that is where my memory goes. And on that walk, again, February 12th, 2009, not the dead of winter, because it never really is the dead of winter in the five boroughs, 
or anywhere in the US, I think anymore, sadly, climate crisis. I, I love hats. And as a girl that has been, you know, on the pendulum of slender and not and slender and not, a hat always fits. And a hat is a wonderful way of imparting your style when you don't have hair that you love or you don't really love your full outfit, but your hat will work. Now the wind blew my hat off my head and I turned around to step back into the crosswalk to retrieve my hat and coming perpendicular was an ambulance that hit me. And um, I went into a coma not long after that and suffered what was medically called a traumatic brain injury. Two and a half weeks in a coma, series of surgeries, and Rivki, I'm happy to share anything you'd like about that situation in hospital, whatever you need. Yeah, so this, okay. I, this is the kind of thing where it's like, it's such a, it's such a big event that you, I mean, I can't imagine what it was like for you to process. Cause me just hearing the story and, um, and, and listening to your audiobook was, I was, I was like, I knew what was coming and yet it was still so much to, um, to unravel. You get hit ironically by an ambulance and which I guess is kind of great. They're right there to help you. I guess, unless there's no one else inside. Did you go in that ambulance to the hospital or did they call a different I, one? I don't I don't believe so. The driver was taking a passenger home from a hospital. Oh, so, so it was an occupied ambulance. Correct. Happily occupied with someone who was no longer hurt or sick. So right. At least there was that. Okay. Okay. So yeah, I guess that. Um, and then, and, and you have a, this, you know, a traumatic brain injury, a TBI, which is something that is, I mean, people are not, people don't recover from that. Um, that's, I mean, sometimes it's, it's something that is very, it's traumatic. It's the clue is in the title, Rifki. And it's the kind of thing where, you know, your life was put on a very different path for a bunch of years because of, because of this injury. So you wake up in the hospital, you don't remember getting there. You don't remember how you got there. Um, and you have a series of surgeries and medical procedures and everything to, you know, to put you back together in a, in a literal sense. Um, I want to fast forward through that because honestly, like the medical details are not, I mean, they're interesting, but like that, that's not the part that fascinates me. The part that also it's there also, there are too many multi-syllable words in it. (laughs) Too many words that will butcher. (laughs) No, not you, not you, me. You'd like to think. Oh, no, I would. I don't know just, this medical jargon. I'm not uh, trying to show off my smart by using words that have four or five syllables in them. <laughs> Sometimes, no. My first, my first appearance with my book, I had to write out like um, all the I, like old school uh, with the the syllables and the spaces, yeah. and you write them like it looks like a uh, code, yeah, you yeah, know, yeah. to pronounce it correctly because yeah. ventric ventricular. I can't even do it today. <laughs> Ventriculoperitoneal. Okay. <laughs> I mean, if, you know, I'm never going to go on yeah. Jeopardy and be called to do that stuff. So yeah. no, we're good. It's, I, I hear that. It's science. But what's, what's fascinating to me and what the part from your story that really stuck out to me is that after someone has an injury like this, um, you, it is actually illegal to live on your own. You were not allowed, because you would think you get out of the hospital, you're patched up, you're good enough to leave. They're not going to, they're not going to keep you. They're not going to observe you there. They're just, they're letting you go home. And yet at the same time, they tell you that you cannot go. Like, all I would want to do would be to take a shower in my own house, like, and sleep in my own bed. That's literally all that I would want to do. And at the same time, they tell you, you are actually not allowed to go home and you, and you were released to the care of your parents. What was all of that like? I'm so grateful that you perceive it that way, because I know that the 
the correct way I, I know I was supposed to be with it was being grateful to be alive, which I was, and I am every day. That is how I get up in the morning with gratitude. To be told by someone I had not particularly enjoyed, meaning the attending on the case, and for, hear it in a way that did not allow me to have an opinion about it. You know, I, I didn't have a say in how it was. I tried to step back from it and not find the humor, but find the, the operational component of it. Okay, so let's, let's be smart. You haven't worked for a few months, haven't really talked to people in a real way for a few months. You may be skinny as a rail, you're also bald as a baby. So what, really, what, is, what does life look like in that way? So as best of my ability, I tried to frame it like, this is the best thing for me, how glorious and amazing that my parents can make space for me in their home, which is not in New York, and starting at zero. And in, as I say it, I think, wow, that's wise. And the reality of how I played it is so opposite that humans. In what way? So upon, besides New York law that denied me the ability to live my, on my own due to the nature of the injury, uh, that included also the damage to my brain that I couldn't fly because the air pressure in a plane who knows what it might've done. I don't want to visualize that. That's a little too $6 million man for me. I mean, mm -hmm. I don't know if it's real, but you know. Yeah. So a very close family friend happened to have been in town, I think, cause she was in Philly maybe, and she was near. So she rented a Jeep. At the time, my mother did not drive on the highway and drove us from New York back to Cleveland between Akron and Cleveland where my parents were living. And on this eight hours. And it, this is another PSA. If y'all ever want to go from, you know, New York to Northeast Ohio, it's the Pennsylvania Turnpike and it's eight hours and it's ugly just because it's ugly. So in that time where I'm trying to be polite and make conversation at the same time, my memory was so deteriorated that I really couldn't, which is unfortunate because all I was doing during those eight hours was making up stories about how, how, how dreadful things were about to get. And that's never good when we tell ourselves those things. We don't say it out loud for someone to counter it and say, I know you're scared. I know you're feeling truly vulnerable. You need to just be with what, as what this is and allow to happen what can happen. And that is so not where I was because as a strategist, as a problem solver, as someone who is usually first to arrive and last to leave, that's not how I play it. You know, what is wrong? How can we fix it? When do we start fixing it? So with that in mind, I, you know, arrive at my parents' house. My mother had very kindly kept a list of all the different guests and visitors that had come to the hospitals when I was there. And so I undertook writing a series of, I think, 113 thank you notes to people at offices and homes because what really else could I do? I wasn't to work. I wasn't allowed to drive because I keep my car at my parents' house. And the majority of my friends weren't in Ohio. I also wasn't prepared yet to kind of face-to-face -face with people. So to your question, how did I not be great about it? 
besides thinking about how little I was, how much I lacked, I also opted not to think about what was good, primarily that I wasn't dead. Right. And that I, go ahead. Right. I think also, you know, one of the things that you mention a lot in the book is this um, taking things that taking personally things that weren't personal. Now you mentioned that you hadn't spoken to people in a couple of months. We should note the reason you hadn't spoken to people in a couple of months is because you were in the hospital, had a coma with a traumatic brain injury. It wasn't like you could just randomly, go- I mean, I guess technically you had ghosted people, but you had a good reason. Um, and also, I mean, your life is upended because you're going, you're going from New York back to Ohio. And then you have all of these friends and friendships and this social life that you didn't really you know, that you were, that you were feeling like you needed to be kind of thrust into. Um, and, and this phrase I actually wrote down, taking personally things that weren't personal. What did, what did that look like? What did that mean? And do you think there was a way you could have done it better? So that's, a, that's an excellent question. The first part of the question, what does an example of taking personal, that's not personal. The overarching framework in all of this that I didn't realize, I mean, I probably knew in the back in the recesses of my cortex that this was true, that my life having paused hard was not a reflection of anybody else's life. Unless like they moved to non-extradition countries where their phones didn't work, which I don't think really happened with most of my people. And as I witnessed Tragically, via social media, for the most part, people marrying, having children, moving, getting new jobs, kind of really big changes in their lives, whether they um, became more dedicated to a religion or a cause, or they changed careers. In the three some, not quite three months that I was off grid, which in reality, is not that long a time. And so much happens. And as a small business owner, you know this. It's not just the markets. It's not just the trends. It's not just the code. And I, again, probably knew that intellectually. At the same time, here I am, seemingly stuck. You know, uncertain, unclear, a total mess without much to celebrate other than I am not dead. And I, I fell into the devastatingly bad rabbit hole where you compare yourself, not only to other people, but to yourself. When you were younger, thinner, smarter, more successful, dating someone nice, making better money, whatever. And I will forever credit Linford and Karen, who, whose band Over the Rhine is based in Cincinnati, and at one of their shows at Le Poisson Rouge in New York, a couple of years after I was hurt, I had to leave early, I forget why. And I skipped out the back door because I didn't want to disrupt the audience. And their merch table was there and the t-shirts were, there were a bunch of folded t-shirts. And one of the t-shirts caught my eye. It said, comparison is the thief of joy. Yep. I think I bought two of them, you know, paid, had them cash, you know, said thanks and headed home. On my way home, I'm thinking to myself, comparison is the thief of joy. So it turns out Teddy Roosevelt said that. And had I been aware, I mean, of this notion that 
when you say this is less, I am less, they are more, they are better, I was better, you extract everything good about who you are and what you do. And even though I've come to say to say to people, small wins are a big deal, which I first said to my mother when she fell and broke her femur in two places in Cairo during the COVID and had to have that, or just for the COVID and had to have that repaired when my parents were in Egypt. And for her to be back on her feet fairly quickly, you know, moving around, small wins are a big deal. I didn't have that concept for myself because I expected myself to pick it up, get back to it and have it figured out. And while watching my friends and my colleagues with their successes and with their forward movements, I didn't think, what can I learn from this? How can this inspire me? How can they inspire me? All I did was, wow, they're so awesome. And I suck so much. Do you, think that, the, do you think that the fact that you were so grateful to not be dead worked against you? Good question. I think that may have played a role in some professional decisions I made when I returned to New York based primarily on, well, if that didn't screw things up that badly, this probably can't either. Uh, part of it was that. On the whole, though, being grateful has prevented me from going completely off the handle with some of the people in my life, personally and professionally, when things go awry. Right. Um, I, yeah, I'm just, the, the reason why I ask is because I'm wondering <laughs> if, you know, if I would, if I was in that situation where I, I recover from this huge injury that, that some people don't recover from, or they don't recover from fully, I would feel this crushing sense of responsibility to kind of make the miracle worth it to be yeah. like, well, to, if, to justify your existence. Exactly. To be, well, yeah. okay. So if some higher power decided that I get to survive getting struck by an ambulance, then this life needs to justify the fact that, you know, I was saved and not somebody else. So what am I going to do? Like, how am I going to cure cancer, solve hunger and like, I don't know, get rid of polio in Africa to make sure that this is, that this is worth it. Do you feel any sense of that? I absolutely did. And the way that it manifested for me was I worked without being paid. And I worked as a volunteer at some not-for-profit organizations, but and one in particular, as though it was my job. And I also felt incorrectly how blessed I was to be approved, selected, asked to be part of these organizations when I was unable, unsuccessful, um, uh, not hired for uh, a, 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 a paid job. You were being taken and advantage of. I don't, and I'll say this, I do not think I was ever or am being ever taken advantage of or was taken advantage of because it was my choice to raise my hand to say, how can I help? It was my choice to do it when it was, that was accepted. And it was my choice to continue. And it has, it has taken me a great deal of time and even more effort to identify my worth as a person 
And as much as to your point earlier, Rivki, that I am my gratitude for being alive, I can't trade on that. And for me to be grateful, to be alive, and to further commit to the small ways I can make things better, that does not mean that nine times out of 10, it's to exhaust me and to frustrate me and to have me feel extra or on the outside or excluded. And it is interesting, um, in the 80s, I forget if, I'm not sure if this is still a concern anymore. The, there was conversation in the psychological community about needing to be needed. I worked very hard to ensure that I wasn't seeking placement in organizations that were on their last legs or were desperate for help. Because what, I mean, how does that, how would that play? I mean, what, I'm not, I didn't, I didn't want to, I'm not a, like, I'm not a pat on the back kind of person. I'm not, you know, an add a girl to myself kind of person. I don't think you were either. I think that is rooted, that's part of how we were raised. And I think that's who we are as people. It is interesting though, when you get to either the tipping point or the stop sign, for me, it certainly takes longer as the, some of the stories I have told uh, colleagues about an organization I used to be involved, one of them, someone said to me, and how long were you there? <laughs> yeah, well. Yeah. Worth. Yeah. Yeah. We've, we've all been in those, in those situations where, um, where for whatever reason we stuck it out for much longer than we, than we should have. That's, that's for sure. The, the one thing that I'm just curious about. So you, I'm assuming that the recovery period for that kind of injury is like the effects I'm assuming are much longer, like the mental effects I'm assuming are much longer than the physical effects. Do you think that I mean, was, was the fact that you had this kind of brain injury, did that affect your ability to process your relationships? Like you mentioned that it was really hard for you to, um, to accept that other people's lives were not on hold, even while yours was to a certain extent. Um, and that's, that's a hard pill to swallow regardless. Do you think the fact that you literally had, had brain surgery or skull surgery or whatever it was, like literally that's what had happened. Do you think that that had affected your ability to process that on a chemical level? Absolutely. First, how that my that my recovery was identified as being complete in finger quotes speaks only to the medical, the structural parts of it. Meaning when I left New York to be in Ohio for the months I was there, I am confident that were there a different evalu evaluation process after however many months out of hospital and with neuropsychology and osteopathy and all the various treatments, et cetera, any licensed professional worth their salt would have said, girl, you are not ready to step back into much. And, and I said to my neurosurgeon last summer, I said, I'm confident that I probably presented well because I was faking it. I was so ashamed of being on my own in my early 30s, not working, you know, a full-time job, not living in my own apartment. Uh, and if we ever get into, if we get into the dating part of it, I'll, you know, that was its own silliness. I 
was dedicated to hustling myself back to New York into my, my life. Notice I don't say the word normal because I reject that word. I'm challenged by people talking about returning to normal. What is normal? I mean, no, ridiculous. I mean, thank you, COVID-19. <laughs> I, I am, I'm hoping to go, uh, go soon to a therapist to see if I have PTSD because in all of the treatments and all of the counseling that I had, two things were never mentioned to me. PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, and um, medical marijuana, which is unrelated to anything, but now that it's becoming a thing in cannabinoids, et cetera. And I, the reason I raised the PTSD thing with my neurosurgeon last year was not only was the entire, yes, the entire world was and still is in a trauma, in a traumatic experience because of the coronavirus, no question. And in no way do I think I am special better, more amped to freak out. And when you're watching a rerun of Criminal Minds, a show that CBS ought not to have canceled, thank you very much, and you burst into tears. I mean, yes, it's based on real people and real real actions, and it's fiction. Right. I mean, it was, and that that did not happen all the time, but that my response to things that were, Ridiculous. I mean, to burst into tears and and as you follow the news about Brianna Taylor, I'm fine with that. I mean, I think that's an appropriate response as a human. At the same time, to go to the grocery and the 1% milk that I need is not there and the only ones they have expired yesterday, I don't need to cry over that. And I did. So I'll be interested to learn if I have been living with undiagnosed PTSD for a while, because that might explain some of my what you talking about Willis that I went through so right. often in my social life and you know wigging out when people are at a wedding or at a bar or doing something together with their children with their spouses with their partners and I'm not there I mean maybe I'm not supposed to be there and that's okay right you mentioned the dating piece and I do want to touch on this uh I do want to touch on this for a little bit um I cannot imagine what it is like to date post-traumatic brain injury. Um, I cannot imagine what it's like to date post being forced to move from New York to Ohio, which I'm, I'm a born and bred New York girl. And as far as I'm concerned, Ohio might as well be Timbuktu. Um, like that, parts, of I, it, parts of it, sure. Part, okay. See, so yeah. I'm justified in that. Um, not, Cle- not Cleveland? But I'm, I'm sorry, everyone. everyone. I'm a New York snob. I just am. I can't, I can't help I was. It. You're good. I was born here. <laughs> you're fine. There you go. Exactly. Okay. And one of the... You know, dating is complicated under the best of circumstances, under perfectly normal circumstances. And, you know, did you, how, how did all this affect your, affect your dating life? What did that look like? So it's probably a good thing that I was single when I was hurt because I would not have enjoyed the kind of unintentional soap opera component that could have existed if whoever I was seeing felt obligated to come to one of the hospitals in New York or meet my family in this capacity or context, who knows? And even though I had, I was aware of the difference intellectually between alone and lonely, after the injury, I morphed them together. And in seeing so many friends, including my brother, 
in serious relationships, I thought, well, shoot, I mean, whether I'm in a serious relationship or not, you know, I can't be that bad company. So to the point you were made earlier, Rifki, about doing work or being in environments where you're not really necessarily desired, but they need you. I don't know if that's, I don't know if it was desperation or it was um, the really deep need to interact with people, which I think a lot of people around the world have been going through since the stay at home orders got called and, you know, people won't get vaccinated, et cetera, et cetera. And so I thought, well, on the recognition of my brother, I set up an OKCupid profile and got that going. And what I ought to have done is just go on the general dates that I started doing and not get into a, a serious monogamous relationship with uh, one person. That the person within who, with whom I was in the monogamous, monogamous relationship was the person that he was slash is, is less of the point. At the same time, uh, if one believe, people believe in your match or your cosine or however your yin yang, I don't know if I believe in that. I think that there are, it's important to share specific traits and attributes of people or have a, a good compliment, not an, not a, not a um, competition. And again, whether it was desperation, whether it was my misunderstanding of attention for affection, I began dating someone who lived south of where my parents are. And uh, that continued for, I forget how long. And how I justified it to myself, someone who wasn't interested in talking to my friends or my family, had very little interest in my life short of how I was interacting with him. I, I wonder, I don't think about it that much. And you raising it points me to ask myself, how did I bear that? Right. I mean, as much as I talk, because I'm a loquacious person, I don't kind of talk about myself. At the same time, I appreciate if someone is interested in me because I'll tell a little something that we get on to talk about, you know, the Fast and Furious franchise nine or whatever. Right. It's, or hamburgers. Right. It was listening to this section of the book as a, a, my take on it was, and I'll please just, just for the fun of it. Um, I was listening to it and I was thinking like, this doesn't sound like the best relationship. I can understand how you would get into like a less than great relationship, but like, okay, fine. And then you say how it ended where, um, which I, you have to tell this part of the story. Cause at, when I, when I, when you got all the way to the end of it, that was when I went, oh, this must've been a really not like, nobody does that from from a nutshell. So you, you had moved to, I think it was Austin, right? With this guy. So I hadn't, he, he had moved. Oh, he had to, moved. Okay. He had moved to Austin, Texas. And I went to visit him and he shared out of nowhere. Cause among the things I did when I was in Austin, before I had, before I left New York, I had made an appointment to get my apartment appraised because I figured this person that I am in love with, that is in love with me. And let me just add the word purportedly to all of this. Cause who even knows? <laughs> Allegedly. Right. Thank you. Uh, you know, if he's living in Austin, Texas, which is a town I like, um, then it's appropriate that I live there too, because my relationships that have fallen apart in the past have fallen apart partially because 
of distance. So while we are in, while I am visiting in Austin, Texas, and out of nowhere, it comes up in conversation that even though I have just had a conversation with the University of Texas at Austin psychology program about doing a degree there and this, that, and the other, apparently his intention was not to live in Austin for any longer than it would take for him to find a job in Menlo Park, California, which was where, which is where he was desiring to go. Now, this had not been shared with me ever. There was a mention of a job in Menlo Park that I think he'd applied for and hadn't gotten, but be that as it may, got offered a job in Texas and went there. So here I am intending to uproot myself and my life voluntarily, only to do that for who knows how long, three months? I mean, I don't know. I, I thought right. to myself, oh, okay. So this was, I will forever be grateful so that that information came up while I was in Texas. Because who knows if it, if it had never come up, it might've ended up being, you know, a relationship that plays out in, on Judge Judy or who even knows. Right. Probably not. So- But those are fun uh, to watch. Right? They are. Oh, sign. So not a few weeks later, which happened to be my birthday, I, it was as I returned from Texas and I'm thinking about all of this, I thought to myself, that's someone who is purportedly in love with you, with whom you are in love, would know that you are making plans to extract yourself from your life, to join them in the life that they are making there. That that is a short-term thing. Like that's a temporary job, not a full-time long-term thing. What does that tell you about this person, about this relationship? And so I ended it. So a couple of days before my birthday, this, uh, the doorman on my building buzzes and says, there's a package for you. So I went downstairs and I thought, well, it must be something significant because usually at FedEx or DHL or UP, uh, Postal Service brings it upstairs if I'm not home. And going down to the lobby and there was this very large, I don't know, I'm not good with the dimensions. When it, like, you probably, it could have fit probably two or three pillows you okay. know, for the bed. A large so I bring, I bring it and I, I shake it gently and it sounds, you know, I don't hear... I hear some jingling, but nothing that sounded like bells or glass. Get it upstairs, take my exacto, open it. Inside, first is this fairly lengthy letter from this person with whom I had ended the relationship that is angry. And I may have it somewhere in a box I have that is this beautiful, like um, origami kind of looking box that says on it in beautiful calligraphy, box oh crap. And so I probably have it in there. And he is basically telling me how terrible I am for the, being the person I am in friending the relationship. As I, I put, set the letter aside, because there is a lot in this box. Inside this box is every single thing I had ever given him, books, shave cream, you know, soap, uh, P.S., things that had been partially used oh, sent God. back to me. And, and, and I shook the box. I remember there was a sound and I I'm gingerly putting my hands in there. Cause I have no idea. I'm not thinking there's a mousetrap in there, but who knows? And all of a sudden the light catches a bunch of really large pieces of glass that are sharp, you know, I mean, not, you know, you drop glass, usually it breaks in a few pieces. This was shattered. And 
there was a kind of a janky picture frame, just the frame itself, all this broken glass and a picture of the two of us taken, I forget where, maybe at the Columbus Botanical Garden or something. And it's all kind of destroyed now. So apparently that was to be my birthday present. What is not in this box is this glorious button up I had bought him at Hugo Boss after Fashion Week. And I thought, well, at the very least, the he knows what's you good. You mentioned the shirt. <laughs> that That's was it. the part that really got me. Because <laughs> I was, yeah. as I'm listening to this, I'm like, okay, so this guy's clearly a psychopath. This is serial killer stuff. Like, this is not, this is, this is nuts. And then you mentioned that he kept the shirt. And I was like, yeah, okay. That's, it was just, it, I mean, you can't, you can't make this stuff up. That's. No. That's next level. And, I'll and say I'm this. glad that you I got mean, out of the relationship. Thank you. Me too. I'll say this. When, when we don't expect something that feels harmful, whether it's intended to harm us or not, we are likely to respond with vitriol and anger and you thought you knew me, but here's what's real. And so I didn't intend to hurt him. I really didn't. And because I am someone who cannot do anything halfway, and I stand with Tom Waits when he said, the way you do anything is the way you do everything. And so if I could not be holy, W-H-O-L-L-Y, in this relationship for this person, for me, I could not be in this relationship. So it was a fun ride down to the basement in my building with all this glass, like wrapped in seven different plastic bags so no one would, you know, puncture any veins or you know stuff on their pants and I thought to myself well everyone plays anger as they play anger and so you learn a great deal about someone when something unfortunate happens and you see how they handle it I'm not I don't think we could have been friends I mean I'm sure I think some people that people that I have gone out with you know uh even if it was whether it was once or was more than once we're friends. I mean, some of us are really in touch and others of us aren't in touch, but if we cross paths, you wouldn't kind of hide or, you know, step up and kind of scream and yell. Um, I've, I've wondered more than once what the universe had in mind for me by having me choose to be in that relationship. What was I supposed to learn? And I still am trying to figure out what I was supposed to learn other than just because you're by yourself doesn't mean that that's bad. And maybe, uh, you know, in the world of tortoise over hair, which is a world that I have always lived in and now live in actively and intentionally, maybe that's something that where love, romance, life together, maybe where that's concerned, you really need to be about tortoise over hair. Yeah, I, I, I definitely hear that. The title of your book is Believe It and Behave It, which you describe as the opposite of fake it till you make it. What do you mean by that? Because I will, uh, full full confession, I'm a big fan of fake it till you make it. I have, it has gotten me quite far. So I don't know. You know I mean, you're, that, it's, you're, it's your life, so you can say that. But what I know of you and your business and your media, there's very little fake. All right, so I'll break down Believe It and Behave It. So when you really and truly know that you are capable of something and that you will figure out how to do it, that you will meet the people who will assist you in doing it, that you will find the counsel, the therapy, 
the nutrition, the spirits that will guide you to that, that will encourage you, and you really and truly believe that, it is much easier to step into your big person shoes and get to moving to make that happen. It is very different. Fake it till you make it is generally in my experience with it, what people think, what people pretend they know and what people are looking for. That's, that's clear. People tell you that it's in the news, it's in job descriptions, you know, it's in, you know, all kinds of, uh, for your consideration for the Oscars and everything. So when you follow that and you're just kind of play stepping and in a role, I mean, what are you doing? You're not really doing anything because what right. happens when they find out that you can't do it? And if right. you're caught, and I think, I think the energy for me personally, the energy required to posit something to be false with it is so much more exhausting than saying, you know what? That's an excellent point. I'm not good at that. I'm currently learning to do it. If you have any suggestions or feedback, I will hear them. And thank you. I may be, I may look like the less capable or the less smart person if I do that. And you know what? I will get that done in a right. better way and a, and a truer way than if I were to be like, uh-huh, uh-huh, sure. Yeah, I got it. Okay, okay. Is that, is that clear? Did I clear yeah, that? I hear that. It's funny because we actually define fake it till you make it differently. Um, the, the phrase that I like to use actually is that I'm an excellent improviser. I am like, and we're all improvising. We all think we know what we're doing. None of us. And we're all busy worried what? that everyone else knows what they think they're doing when we're Bruce. the only one who doesn't. No, Bruce. everybody is improvising. Everyone's making it up as they go along and figuring it out. And I think that that falls somewhere in the continuum of, of what you're, of, of what you're sharing is this idea that, you know, even when we're confronted with hard things, we can, we can work through them. You know, that if we, if we believe that we can figure out the right way to tackle a situation, then we can behave accordingly. I mean, it is something that I, I, I also, I won't lie. I mean, alliteration and consonants are big things for me. I mean, I, one of my projects and agency was naming. And so, you know, the power of words and et cetera. At the same time, when I, it came to determining a title for my book, and I will happily share where that came from if you'd like me to later. I, I knew that what I was experiencing and what I had experienced was not exclusive to those who have gone through neurological trauma. And I don't have to have gone bankrupt to know what it is to struggle with money. I don't have to have started a business and then had my partner steal all the copyrighted material to know what it is to be in a bad business situation. I don't have to have been left at the altar to know what an unhealthy romantic relationship is. And I certainly did not have to be hit by a truck and suffer a, a you know, injury that could have killed me to know what it is to live in the rabbit hole for longer than anyone really is supposed to. And so if I wasn't the only person to go through a trauma, which of course is a duly defined word, 
trauma is something that can happen to you physically in a negative way. It also is something that affects your emotions and your psychology, how you think and feel about things. If I had the blessing, the grace, the honor to be alive still, wasn't it my responsibility to provide something of a blueprint or a guidebook or a, you know what, yes, it really sucks. And here's some ways to help it suck less. I decided that it was. And so I wrote the book. Wow, sorry, you didn't ask me, but I <laughs> threw it in I there. Like, I like it. Where did the title come from? So the title came from the most basic fact-oriented concept that I came with when I actually felt better. Not physically better, but emotionally better. More like me, more capable, more conscious of what was possible. And whilst absolutely fueled by gratitude, not entirely wrapped up in gratitude. Because, and then the subtitle comes from all the different ways that we start over. We reset, we restart, and maybe it's as simple as reframing. So, okay, this happened and it was bad. Same time, I learned this, I now can do this, this is part of my life now, this is not. Yeah, I, I hear that. The, um, I do highly recommend the audiobook, and I am, I will be perfectly honest. Yours was the first audiobook that I have ever listened to because I am very much a book in hand kind of paper reader. Um, but you were kind enough to send over the audiobook and I listened to it and it was fantastic. You narrated Thank yourself you. and it really, it was you telling your story. And there's so, I mean, we touched on just a little bit. There are so many little pieces um, there's so many little there's I mean there's it's there's so much goodness in there so definitely if you enjoyed this conversation do check out the audiobook um if somebody wants to learn more about you Kate where can they go thank you Rifki for listening to the book while it is not very long it is still something to do to listen to a book that is not about how to really make the best souffle or how to really contour your cheek in a way that's that will make Channing Tatum or Anthony Mackie or Idris Elba notice you so my last name and my first name, uh, in the right order, that's my website, kateharvey.com, K-A-T-E-H-A-R-V-I-E, V as in Victor. I am on the socials as Glossgal, G-L-O-S-S-G-A-L. And I write for the Universal Hip Hop Museum, for In Step Beauty. And I am uh, gratefully, blessedly, a guest on amazing people's podcasts like Rivki. And all those can be found everywhere you listen to podcasts and on my website's media page, as well as information about the book. The book in all of its formats, including the audio, is accessible via my website, kateharvey.com slash book. That's fantastic. I will put that link in the show notes. Uh, the last thing that I want to ask you is what I ask everyone who comes on the show, and that is to you, Kate Harvey, what does it mean to make an impact? For me to make an impact is to help people see all that is possible via their own skills, their own steez, their own energy. And hopefully I help them to recognize this by them seeing me get it done. Because I am only who I am, not famous, not special, not super, just me. I love that. Thank you so much for coming on today, Kate. I really appreciate Thank it. Thank you so much. Continue to be impactful, Rivki. Shouts. Oh, shucks. Thanks. 
Thanks for listening. If you'd like to learn more about Kate, her links are in the show notes. The Impactful Podcast is a project of impact fashion, the clothing line I created because I believe that we are all deserving of the beautiful things life has to offer. See my modest designs that are available in sizes 2 through 24 by going to impactfashionnyc.com. Access all of that by swiping up on the cover art. There are currently 12 people listed by Ora Agunot as a recalcitrant party. View their names, photos, locations, and details of their cases by visiting getora.org slash recalcitrant dash parties. The episode art was designed by Michelle Moses. Original music composed by Nissan Fetman. This episode was produced and hosted by me, Rifki Itzquitz. Catch me on Instagram and Facebook at impact.fashion.myc. As always, here's to making an impact together.